Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Greetings, greetings, fellow Who-gazers, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the target novelizations and publication order. A member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network, my name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. We have a pretty packed show today, talking about Doctor Who and the Invisible Enemy. This is our third straight episode talking about a Bob Baker and Dave Martin TV story. They happen to novelize three of them in a row consecutively, and that will be the last one of them for a while. I want to talk before we jump into this week's interview and breakdown of the book, just a couple of programming notes. This episode is coming out on Sunday, the 16th of October, 2022. We just learned that exactly one week after this episode comes out, we'll air the finale of the Chris Chibnall and Jodie Whittaker era of Doctor Who, The Power of the Doctor. I led a panel discussion on that over on Trap One. That came out a few days ago, and I will post a link to that in the show notes. I highly recommend that you listen regularly and subscribe to Trap One in case you're not a regular there. That is a general interest Doctor Who podcast where I am one of the regular set of rotating co-hosts. We talk a lot about Doctor Who media and tie-in material. And this past week we have talked at length over an hour about the power of the Doctor trailer and what the episode might be about. Very little information has come out. Next week's episode will come out in the morning of the Chibnall finale. And then I will be part of a Trap One panel breaking down that final episode. And I'll also bring it up here as well when the time comes on the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I am now three weeks away from episode 50, which is a nice round number. The 50th episode of Doctor Who Literature, not counting bonus episodes, as well as our breakdown of the Doctor Who and the War Games novelization. I would love to have your input. If you have things you want to say about War Games the book, or War Games the episode, or about Doctor Who literature in general, I think episode number 50 would be a very good place for those. You can send me uh, any audio you wish to record, try and keep it between 3 and 5 minutes, and I will include as many of those as is practical in episode 50. As usual, there is some listener mail and some other general uh, points of interest in other aspects of Jason's life, but this is going to be a pretty long episode, so I will push some of that over to next week. We do have a correspondence piece from the recent Riverside tribute to the late Terrence Dix, who of course is a major figure in the life of this podcast. I'm going to push that over to next week, episode 48. But in the meantime, we have a lot to talk about with regard to Doctor Who and the Invisible Enemy making his record-setting fifth appearance on this show. I have a conversation coming up with Cy Hart. So let's get to it. Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, 
reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. Do you collect Doctor Who? Do you have Doctor Who items and you don't know that you collect Doctor Who? For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, a Direction Point Network podcast. I am Larry Van Versbergen, your host, and I have been collecting Doctor Who for 41 years. We have popular features like collection protection and the most outrageous offer. Anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to Doctor Who Literature and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Sai, welcome back. We have been talking offline and I've been following your Twitter posts this week. It seems that you have not been having the best week ever. What's going on with you, my friend? Well, um, as we're here to, uh, as we're convened to talk about a virus, obviously this week was my turn to get COVID for the second time. So that was an absolute joy. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's been a lot of um, sitting on the sofa and watching Doctor Who week for me. I have to admire your dedication to my little podcast because. Most folks do a little bit of preparation for my show. They read the book. They think about the book. You, however, not only read the book, you not only show up prepared to discuss the book, you actually went the full Stanislavski method. You went and you got the virus to prepare for the experience of talking about a book that is based on a TV story about viral infection. So I salute you for going out and getting yourself sick to give you an insider's perspective on the virus. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, you know, just, yeah, it's just that one step up from everyone else. I've just got to go that one extra phase. So, yeah, I mean, and, and I contracted it by going to see the radiophonic workshop. So, you know, <laughs> um, I, I think I've ticked all the boxes there. So you actually got COVID by going to a Doctor Who event. Were they playing at the Radiophonic Workshop? Were they playing Dudley Simpson's famous uh, score from the Part 3 cliffhanger, which I will be playing a little bit later on during this recording? Uh, sadly not, no. Um, it, it was a really interesting gig because they um, actually scored a film with another band, which was really interesting. So they did sort of sound effects and effects work for this film while another band were playing music as well. So yeah, it, but it was very, very weird. Um, uh, but unfortunately my, um, my friend Colin, who I, I went with was not well and turned out that he, he'd got COVID. And, um, so yeah, unfortunately after spending time in a, an enclosed space in the car for a couple of hours and stuff like that, there was no way I was going to avoid it. So only upside was it was second time round and it was much milder this time. So yeah, <laughs> I caught it. The original, the alpha variant, the first variant in March, 2020, about 10 days after I got home from lockdown. And this was late March, 2020. And I ended up having to do a trap one. Uh, the recording was like the first Saturday in April. And I was almost at my worst. I will tell you that I 
still to this day do not recall which trap one episode it was. I have no recollection of anything that I might have said during my uh, COVID-positive recording. So hopefully you are going to do a much better showing this week than I did on trap one two and a half years ago. Well, fingers crossed. I will do my best. But you have been watching a lot of Doctor Who this week, and I've seen you put Twitter polls up as to what you should watch. And it seems like some of the stories that have won your polls have not been the stories designed to put you in the best frame of mind. So <laughs> what have you watched this week, classic Doctor <laughs> Who-wise? Well, that, but this is always the way, isn't it? You you throw these things out. So um, uh, uh, the, for the first day, I'd asked... Um, the um, members of the Ham Fam, um, Joe and um, Fraser, for their suggestions. And Fraser's suggestion, which was um, Doctor Who and the Silurians one, which, of course, um, details the outbreak of uh. um, a major <laughs> virus. So, um, yeah, that was a joy. And people feeling very unwell and getting hot and sweaty and not feeling at their best May, might not have been been a great choice. No, you don't want to show up at a convention cosplaying as Jeffrey Palmer's character from Doctor Who and the Silurians, for sure. <laughs> you really don't. And then you've got Peter Miles, who's going full-on um, vaccine skeptic, and um, yeah, there's no pandemic. This is all an invention to get me out of my job. And I'm just thinking, this is really prescient, isn't it, actually? Um, Malcolm Hulk ahead of the game once again. Absolutely. Yeah, he goes full-on anti-vaxxer, this is a hoax, the full-on Donald Trump uh, U.S. politician playbook. But in Doctor Who and the Silurians, he actually has to suffer consequences for getting the infection, whereas someone like my fellow Spotify podcaster Joe Rogan has has lived a consequence-free life for his uh, statements, unfortunately. So the Doctor Who universe is maybe a little more morally just than the real world. Yes, yeah, very much so. Um, so th- then I followed that up with um, the absolute joy, I think that's the right word, and maybe it's not, that is um, the Time Monster. I've been having a bit of a Pertwee week, really. Um, he's quite reassuring when you're unwell, but oh dear me, <laughs> that's, a, that's a story that's all over the place and... Um, a story, I think, where the cast are having fun, but they forget to bring the audience along with them and let them join in with it. So, you know, not not a huge favourite, I have to say. I will defend the Time Monster up to a point, because that was one of the Pertwee stories that I discovered by the novelization first. I mean, mm-hmm. you're just reading the absolute value of the words on the page. And yeah, especially I love when, when I was a younger viewer. Mm-hmm. I thought it was tremendously entertaining, and it wasn't until I got to wreck arts Doctor Who in the in the early to mid nineties that I realized this was a universally panned story. And the discontinuity guide, which is a look at received wisdom in the nineteen nineties, and I know much of that has now been revised, but received wisdom in the nineties, this was the worst story ever. I think there's a lot of good individual moments in the story, even mm-hmm. though it is arguably. Uh, Roger Delgado's weakest performance because he's going the full-on Anthony Ainley. But, I I mean, the stuff about, you know, no Sergeant Benton, that is the oldest trick in the book. That stuff is gold. The stuff with uh, the King of Atlantis uh, showing up and uh, the Doctor telling his story about the daisiest daisy, that's all gold. Yeah, that's lovely, yeah. And Pertwee's acting his socks off in in those scenes. Um, And then followed that up with Planet of the Spiders. So, you know, and then that's that's a really good... Great story, and one that I've come to appreciate as I've got 
got older, the way that it ties up the whole of the era and um, it's just really just a, a really brilliant and very modern kind of storytelling that you didn't didn't get so much in Doctor Who at that point. So I think it's it's um one that's that's sort of nicely underrated. When you watch the Pertwee era and then you watch the RTD era one after another, you will see that the Pertwee era seems to have been a huge influence on Russell T. Davies because, for example, you take the Green Death. You have this rather silly story about polluted maggots taking over the countryside and turning people green. That is a almost comical RTD era plot, but you have the overlay of the politics. Barry Litz, I think, is a little bit to the left of Russell T. Davis, but you have that political uh, thrust. And then you have the relationships between the characters in The Green Death is as important as the plot. And the Mm -hmm. whole story is structured around Joe Grant as the fledgling flying the coop. And you have her amazing scene with Cliff. I think it's part three or part four talking about Bert and doing his little eulogy. And then, of course, Joe's leaving scene and the doctor driving off all upset. I mean, that's almost the doctor and Rose in rehearsal. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, the Pertwee era was the the era that uh, Russell T. Davis grew up with. That was his his childhood. So it's naturally going to be the one that you come back to. I think we all have that that the the ones that we have as a as a young child. Um, are the ones that we always sort of gravitate towards being proper Doctor Who in a way that maybe other other eras aren't. Um, so yeah, I mean you can see definite, um, some, I think links between the the Russell T Davis era and the Pertwee era very very much so, right up to the supporting cast of characters who aren't there all the time but are there when you need them the whole lot. Right, like Captain Yates and Sergeant Benton are not traditionally on the list of companions. They do not show up in Ian Levine's montage in Resurrection of the Daleks. The Doctor does not recite their names under his breath in The Curse of Fenric. But you have to consider those three main unit characters as actual proper companions, even though two of the three never traveled in the TARDIS. People kind of forget they're the secret sauce of the era. Absolutely, yeah. Um, the era would be worse without without them there as well and it's uh, in some ways i was talking about this with with a friend and i'm in the time monster and sort of two things that we came up with that could make it better was one um if um the um female um professor whose name escapes me now Ruth, Ruth. um had been liz what if it had been liz who'd been working with the master oh, and they brought oh, her back wow. And then, then they'd taken her to Atlantis with them. Wouldn't that have been great? And she didn't know who the master was, obviously, but she'd be taken right. in. And then you'd have this whole extra thing. Or what if they'd taken Benton to Atlantis with them? And just just those things. You just think, just missed the trick here. Like, oh, well, no, you can't take anyone else in the TARDIS because that's the Doctor and Joe. They do that. But actually, you've got this cast. You could have could have taken someone else with them or the brigadier and it would have instantly made it a different and slightly better story see this is this is my, one of the games i like to play is um, sort of retroactive 
script editing Doctor Who stories so that you can make them better in your head. And I think there's a whole host of things where you can see decisions that were made in Doctor Who where you think, well, if they'd just tweaked that slightly and just done one extra bit, just imagine what this could have been. That is a great point about Liz, and I don't know if it would have been feasible or if Caroline John even would have wanted to come back at that point, but you're right. As as much as I like Ruth as a character, although I'm still out for uh, debate on the line, may God bless the good ship women's lib and all who sail on her, that line perhaps has not aged very, very well. Not brilliantly, no. <laughs> but yeah, if that had been a character that we already knew and cared about, like, like Liz, it would have given us more of an emotional investment in the story. Mm-hmm. And we all have our John Anthony Blake convention stories. Uh, people oh, who yeah. have met John Levine in real life have maybe not the most wonderful stories to tell. And I, I, I have been in the room many, many years ago and I will not share my stories. However, you have to respect that this is someone who is not a trained actor. He was a background artist or an extra, as we'd say here in the States. And he was inside of monster costumes in uh, the middle of the Troughton era. He gets pulled to the front line by Douglas Campfield and he gives some of the most incredible performances of the era because in Inferno, he is playing three characters. He is playing Benton. He is playing evil fascist Benton, who's terrific. And even gets a, even gets a cliff. There's a cliffhanger that is just fascist Benton pulling a gun on the doctor. So Benton gets yeah. to be the villain in a cliffhanger and he just crushes it. And then he gets to play uh, a mutating werewolf and a really horrific, montage that is just Douglas Canfield or Barry Letts working from Douglas Canfield's notes. Mm -hmm. Canfield had his heart attack in the middle of that story. Three incredible performances. And the time monster is his story as much as anyone else's. He gets a rather big portion of the plot. He gets a great solo confrontation with Delgado of the kind that is usually reserved for John Pertwee. You're right. If he had gone to Atlantis and he had fought the Minotaur, in place of the yeah. doctor, then you're talking about a story that everybody loves universally. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, for all his faults, John Levine, he ge- always gives a really naturalistic performance and he's very down to earth and he's very grounded. And I think he's always, he's always good. He, if not outstanding, he's always, always good and always decent. And uh, yeah, I come on way. I really like Sergeant Benton. I am a big Benton fan. And segueing on from that, so you have watched three long Pertwee serials this past week. And as I've said probably on this podcast before, you have five years of Barry Letts and Terrence Dix as showrunner. They did everything from the Silurians up through Robot. The only story that is not theirs is <clears throat> the war is um, Spirit from Space. Derek Sherwin was producer for two stories before that, and they're both top ten. They're Spearhead and The War Games. After Barry Letts and Terrence Dix step down, you get three years of Philip Hinchcliffe. He, he does 16 stories between Sontaran Experiment, which was his first produced, all the way up through Talons, which we've talked about quite a lot on this show lately. Yes. <laughs> But of these 16 Hinchcliffe stories, eight of them are in the top 22 all-time on the last DWM uh, countdown survey. So that's – if you go from War Games through Talons, 
And then if you add Horror of Fang Rock, which is not the first Graham Williams story, but is aired right after Talons, you go from the end of season six to the beginning of season 15. This is Doctor Who's undisputed golden age. The ratings are never better. The stories are the best. There's only a handful of stories out of that whole run that you wouldn't want to watch endlessly. Then, <clears throat> Graham Williams arrives, and his first story produced, although not first aired, is the story that we're talking about today, The Invisible yes. Enemy. So what we're going to do is we're going to change things up a little bit. You, for a long time, were the undisputed king of this podcast's 20 questions game. Right. You recently lost your throne to Conrad, who swooped in and defeated you. I can't think of anyone who could who could be better. I'm quite happy for Conrad to have the crown. And you actually wanted to play 20 questions again today. And I do have a story picked out from last time. But you and I both agreed we're going to give Conrad a chance to savor his title. You had the title for a long time. Exactly. So we're, we're not going to challenge Conrad today. We love Conrad. This is not mm -hmm. let's dethrone Conrad week. So I have created a new game, but... It is a game that you have played before on Trap 1. And the game oh, that we are introducing okay. this week on Doctor Who Literature is uh, stolen from my favorite NPR series, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We're going to play the Listener Limerick Challenge. <laughs> but we have to play the game before we discuss the episode slash book because these are three limericks about the invisible enemy. So consider this right. a test of how well you prepared for my show while you were sick with COVID and watching almost all of the Pertwee era on binge watch. <laughs> so if okay. you have not prepared for the invisible enemy, these three limericks will root you out. And then the next 40 minutes after that will be very, very awkward. <laughs> okay. Right. I'm ready. Go on. You only need to get two out of the three in order to prevail, but I expect you to get all three because you were so good at this game when we played it on trap one, last year during our mm -hmm. Flux episodes. Are you ready? I'm ready. Number one. Leela asks, where will you take her? Of the doctor who's trying to shake her. Two guys wrote this script. Their names now being flipped are called Dave Martin and Bob Baker. All right. One out of three is in the okay. bag. You need one more to win, but you need two more. To prove that you're still Psy. Okay. Are you ready for the second one? I'm ready. The doctor thinks this bot is way fine. But Marius said, hands off now. Hey, mine. He's our cute robot dog. Our most valuable cog. Let's welcome aboard our friend. K9. That's right. I will point out to you that when I went back to my office in June of this year for the first time in over two years, I have a talking canine prop on my desk, a miniature that I bought at Forbidden Planet the last time that I was in the UK. I think 2019 is when I got my little canine. The very first thing I did when I got back to work was I, I go, canine, are you happy to see me? Then I press the button and John Leeson goes, affirmative, master. Oh. I posted a video of that <laughs> on Twitter. That did very, very well on Twitter. Big canine. We're going to talk about canine a lot here, I suspect. We are. But there is, you've already won the game, but I expect you to get okay. the third one. Right. There once was a man with no beard who said, it is just as I feared. Lowe's fate is much bleaker than Saffron and Meeker. 
even though I'm played by Michael Sheard. All right, oh, three for three. The <laughs> listener limerick I'm challenge may be too easy for Cy. <laughs> All right, next time you're on, we will uh, have you play 20 questions again and see if you can get your, uh, your, your crown back. Deal. Although we're getting to the point with 20 questions where it's going to get harder and harder to win unless you are like Mark and you're able to guess a story in one as, you, as your opener. <laughs> That'll happen well, someday. Well, you never know. So I was talking to you offline as we were scheduling the recording date for this, and I was expressing my dissatisfaction with Invisible Enemy, both as it's produced and as Terrence Dix writes the novelization. My contention is that he about halfway through the story realizes this is an abomination and he just gives up <laughs> and I will spend a little more than 30. I've already recorded the track. I've already spent a little more than 30 minutes critiquing, dissecting, uh, dismembering both the TV story and large portions of the book. You, however, have a different perspective and for you, this is a much more favored entity. So talk to me a little bit about invisible enemy TV and print, your perspective. Well, again, well, as as um, sort of always with the books around anything before Destiny of the Daleks, this was a story I first um, discovered really as a target book, and it was a real favourite. This one, um, my local library in Bracknell, Harmon's Water Library, um, had the hardback edition of this one, and so that was one I just borrowed and borrowed and borrowed, and I read it a lot, and I don't know what it was about this story that just kept bringing me back, but I just thought it was full of imagination and brilliance. And I can remember being really upset as a young child when um, uh, Parsons and um, is killed. And I don't know why, because it's not made. It, it's literally one line in the book where, where he is, he's killed in front of professor Marius um, but I can remember being really moved by that as a child, and it was very unexpected. And going back now, because I haven't read this probably since I was a teenager, I would think at at the last thing I've, I've listened to the audio book read brilliantly by John Leeson, um, and it's a, it is I have to agree with you. It's a really perfunctory novel. It's the first half is great. There's a lot of very interesting stuff in the first half, but I think you're right. Terence obviously thinks, right, well, they're going off on one now. It's the Bristol boys. <laughs> um, they're, obviously, Robert Holmes isn't reining them in in the way that I used to and said, no, we can't do a story set in the Doctor's brain, but they're going to do it anyway. Um, but I think it was just the sheer imagination and the um, <laughs> almost willful... Oh my god, so they're injecting a photocopy of the Doctor into his own brain that I loved as a child. I just thought that was one of the most brilliant and wonderful ideas. And in the book, that falls a bit flat, I think, because you have, um, although the TV version is flawed in many ways, actually the design sort of choices that they make inside the Doctor's brain to make it a baroque and weird alien CSO landscape, um, I think, actually covers the silliness of the idea quite well because the the 
the visuals aren't too bad um but in the book you haven't got very much sort of description of that so there's sort of a discussion of the do- of leela walking across the bridge between the left and the right side of the doctor's brains and it being spongy and narrow and but that's that's about it and he could have really gone to town with that but obviously he's giving up on a bad idea and just getting through this as quickly as possible this was made before star wars but for my money the outer space effects especially in part one look terrific when you adjust for the fact that it's on a bbc budget in 1977 that outer space stuff the asteroids the shuttlecraft the, the effect of the virus that stuff looks great and when you're watching the show in sequence as i did at the beginning of 2021 it is one of the more impressive visual looks that you get as the show evolves from 1963 to 1977 that's the good part okay Mm -hmm. we've talked about the good part now (laughs) you're right when parsons is killed this is marius's medical student his protege marius presumably hand selected him to be his second in his uh, biomorphology lab or whatever his specialty was I, i forget the exact term Terence started off writing 140-page novelizations. Then, starting in the late 70s, he drops down to 120 pages. This is the first of his micro-books. There are four books of his that are barely 100 pages long. This one is 104. Image of the Fendal, Destiny of the Daleks, Robots of Death are all going to be micro-books. And then, once he's not writing eight books a year, he's going to go back up to longer books for most of the 1980s. If he had 15 extra pages to work with, it is certainly within Terence's wheelhouse to take Parsons' death and make it have meaning. He could have done two or three paragraphs. Marius remembered the first time Parsons showed up in his office for an interview. He hand-selected Parsons out of 20 candidates for this coveted position on the asteroid. Uh, Frederick Yeager on TV, bless him, is doing a complete comedic send-up yes this is the story this is the story where tom baker hinchcliffe and holmes are gone the reins are off this is the story where it begins for the next three years tom baker has cast aside all seriousness and all gravitas to the winds starting from this story and going up through horns of nymon he will spend 15 percent of each episode fondling the tardis console and acting in increasingly silly ways. When you have Frederick Yeager doing the same thing on camera and egging him on, and I'm going to play an isolated audio clip from part two later on during the recording. You'll see what I mean about Frederick Yeager. Derek Goodwin, I think this was his first, perhaps it was his only Doctor Who. Yes. You lose after season 13, you lose Douglas Camfield. After season 14, you lose Michael E. Bryant. You lose David Maloney. You lose all the experienced directors who made some of Doctor Who's finest moments. And in season 15, most of these stories, with the thankful exception of Patty Russell coming back for Horror of Fang Rock, you have a lot of clueless newbies directing this story, or directing these stories. So Invisible Enemy was not, regrettably, in the best of hands. If you had David Maloney or... Douglas Camfield or Michael E. Bryant on set for this story, maybe the acting turns out differently. Maybe this is not pitched 
that the less discriminating seven-year-old who likes comedy accents. Yeah, I mean, yes, um, there is a lot of that through the Williams era. But there are, I think Tom does a very good job with the possessed scenes in part one and part two, where he's genuinely chilling. And there's a great description of um, the effect that, that the doctor's possession has on him in the book, where Terence says, Leela picks up that it's not the doctor talking because all the, all the warmth of his voice has gone. And that's exactly what Tom Baker does on TV. Um, he sort of takes it down and he makes his doctor sound sinister. And he goes over the top a lot later on um, in the story as well. But I think those possessed scenes are, are pretty well done. That's a good point. And the best chapters in the book are chapters one, which is the setup to the story, mm-hmm. and then chapter four, which is uh, the first few scenes in part two. That's Terence at his most descriptive best, really adding value and adding continuity to the scenes. That stuff is all good. But let's talk about the confrontation between the doctor and the virus crab that is in his brain at the end of part three. The words that the two of them exchange, this is Tom Baker and John Leeson uh, doing a sort of rap battle in the doctor's brain. The words that they're both given is good, but you think about Tom Baker has had these great verbal confrontations with bad guys before all throughout the Hinchcliffe era. Tom Baker against Noah in the Ark in Space. Tom Baker against Sutek in Pyramids of Mars. Tom Baker in Chang's dying scene, and then Tom Baker just ridiculing relentlessly Magnus Greel and Talons. Tom Baker is at his best when he's dressing down a bad guy. When it's a very tall actor crouched down to verbally roast a wiggly crab-sized prop in a rushed set. They were supposed to have a week at Ealing to film the inside of the doctor's brain, and instead they had one day in TC8 when you, or whatever studio it was, mm-hmm. you can feel that Tom Baker has had the life go out of him having to lecture a crab in a poorly realized set. And this could have been so much of a better confrontation, but unfortunately, and I loved it when I was, when I was 11, I was repeating that stuff endlessly. I still like to say, get out of my brain, but I'll play the audio later on. It really does not hold up as uh, Tom Baker's finest hour. No, and um, I don't think, um, to give them their due, Bob Baker and Dave Martin are necessarily the greatest writers of that kind of confrontation between the Doctor and a villain. They're quite one note, and we'll see it later in the season when the Doctor is facing off against the Oracle. And no one can remember those scenes for a a good reason really that they're, <laughs> they're just not terribly memorable um i think they're better in the armageddon factor and bob baker is tremendously good in nightmare of eden and then the production lets his story down but here it's all it's all okay and you get the feeling this is robert holmes is still on the staff at this point but he's bowing out and I'm not entirely sure his heart is in it. He didn't want to be there for this extra six months or whatever to hand over. And you can see it's just a, well, that'll do. And it 
the whole thing is uh, a that'll do story, a that'll do script, and it it's entertaining enough while it's on, but it's not one you really sort of think very much of. And this is what disappointed me because, as I said, it was a book that I'd loved as a child and read and read and read. And it was one of the last Tom Baker stories I ever saw. Um, So it was sort of rising up at that point because it was quite exciting because there were only sort of three or four Tom Baker stories. This might have been the last one I saw, actually, thinking about it. Um, It's difficult to remember now. But then you're sort of building it up and thinking, well, okay, I've always loved this one. And then you come to it and think, oh, (laughs) that's it. Okay. (laughs) You know, and... As you said, the model work is fantastic, and that's a real, real place where Graham Williams does push the show and does push the show onto new things. But again, everything is just a bit slapdash from the scripting to the to the performances to the production in general. To I don't think the design is bad, but um, because of sort of the rushed production a lot of it doesn't come off or isn't lit as well as it might have been before and and things like that. So it's all not quite there. You're right. Robert Holmes wanted to leave. He wanted to go freelance after writing Talons, and he had to stay on for the first half of season 15 to hand over to Anthony Reid. I think Anthony Reid is an unsung hero Mm -hmm. as script editor. You're talking about the guy who wrote horns of naimon you're talking about the guy who oversaw the key to time season yep who wrote a lot of um the invasion of time with graham williams as well at the very last minute right and there's there's an audible sag at the exact moment in armageddon factor part five or part six when anthony reed hands over to douglas adams the Mm -hmm. tone changes dramatically and i much more appreciate the Anthony Reed half of the story than I do the Douglas Adams half. That is probably a conversation for another day. This is the first yes. Anthony Reed. Well, this is, I guess it's not Anthony Reed yet. No, no, not quite. But so we'll talk a lot more about him when his books come up in the novelization sequence. Mm-hmm. And certainly Horns of Nymon, I think is a much better story than most fans give it credit for. And I believe yes. you agree with me. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great story that again is let down by being, the cheap story of the season because Graham Williams has suddenly worked out that you keep your money for the last story, which is going to stay in the heads of the viewers. And then suddenly his last story is pulled out from under him by, by the, um, by the walkout of staff and the strike at the BBC. So um, for Sharda. So yeah, it's just unfortunate really. Coming back to Robert Holmes for just a moment before we move on. The last story that was made immediately before this one is Towns of Wang Chiang. So this is, and again, it's a problematic story. I talked about it with John and Kate, talked about it with Graham Burke, talked about it with Dale Smith, who literally wrote the book on Talons for Black Archive. We've talked about Talons a lot, but it is, in many respects, Robert Holmes' magnum opus, because it has some of his best dialogue, some of his best plotting, all things being equal, it is a story about a war criminal from the 51st century. It is about World War VI. It is about the Filipino army invading Reykjavik. This is Robert Holmes with stray continuity references building entire worlds. 
And when you come to the fact that Captain Jack is a time agent from the 51st century, this little world that Bob Holmes created is almost directly responsible for Torchwood and large chunks of the new series. Now, what is the next story made after Talons? It is Invisible Enemy, which takes place in the 51st century. Robert Holmes should have had Talons fresh in his head. What this story could use is a little less comedy. The guest cast in this story is made up of poorly acted, one-dimensional pieces of scenery. You have a character whose name is Nurse. You have a character whose name is Ophthalmologist. You have a character whose name is A-Medic. A-Medic. So there's no character in the story. Had Robert Holmes the time and the inclination... Imagine if this had been a partial sequel mm-hmm. to the aftermath of Talons of Wang Chiang. Imagine if you have characters talking about the fall of Reykjavik at the hands of the Filipino army. Imagine if you have people talking about the, the children of the commissioner of the Icelandic alliance. Imagine if you have a character who's being treated on the asteroid who is a refugee from one of Magnus Greel's camps on Earth who is a victim of the distillation machine. Yeah. If oh, you good. cut out about 10 minutes of bad material and replace it with a kind of mini-sequel to Talons of Wang Chiang, again, doing my after-the-fact script editing, that's a story that people would love. Yeah, absolutely. And I, there is some some lovely ideas, like the Doctor saying the humans are going into space like a plague of locusts and making the first jump into space big time. And the idea of them having... Like, um, and I think Terence Dick sort of draws the analogy that um, this is like uh, uh, Titan is like a petrol station in space, and you're making um, the the world sort of real in that kind of way. That they would need fueling stations, they would need this to make those jumps, and it is a job, and it's not terribly exciting, but someone's got to do it. There's there's so many germs of great ideas. I'm just punning there. <laughs> and, that was, um, and the hospital is a great idea as well, that they're treating alien um, viruses and, and things like that and other things that are affecting the people who are out in space, and it's a dangerous place. But none of it quite gels, and your ideas are brilliant. We could have had all of this and people fleeing the the earth because there had been a huge war and they're going into space with new hope and things like that. And no one thinks about that. No one's thought of it. Every Doctor Who story has really been treated as a separate entity to what's gone on before, unless you've got the Daleks or the Cybermen returning or whatever. And there's no thought that actually you could, you could make those joined up bits and sort of pull all of those ideas together. And Robert Holmes could have done it, but he was probably busy writing The Sunmakers as he was script editing the story. So I imagine his heart was just not, as you say. Yeah, I just don't think his heart was in the stories he was doing. And they'd had the crisis as well going on with Terence Dix's story. So you're not going to get the... um, whatever it was going to be called originally, which has now just escaped my head. And you're not going to get sort of state of decay as it would become. And so suddenly he's got to write a story set on a lighthouse that he doesn't want to do and all of this. So it's Doctor Who, as always, is in crisis behind the scenes. 
And so if you've got a script that's ready, that will do, that you could just get into the studio, then that's enough, I think. And then, of course, this is the same season that infamously spawned the budget crisis that led to Underworld being filmed in front of a single well, green exactly. cloth. Yeah, because, again, this is partly huge inflation in the UK, meaning they've got less money to work with. But also, um, it's the Talons effect, again, of um, Philip Hinchcliffe um, going out in a fit of peak, spending far more than he should to make Talons look fantastic but scuppering his successor, who then has been scrutinised to the penny about what he's spending um, because they'd had such a massive overspend. So suddenly Graham Williams is hamstrung by by that as well. And so he's in a really difficult position. He's got to take away the violence, not spend so much money. So how are you going to make Doctor Who? It's a really difficult job. And in all defense to Graham Williams, who I've kind of been savaging for the last half hour, he will later do incredible work. The first four stories of the Key to Time season are all gems. I'm not really sold on Pirate Planet, but it's so well received in the rest of Phantom that it would be churlish for me to not acknowledge that. I love Stones of Blood. love Androids of Tara. You have done the Androids of Tara new novelization hour on Trap 1. And you'll be doing the... The Stones of Blood new novelization shortly, I believe, for Trap One. Those just arrived in the States, and I just started reading my Stones of Blood last night, so that Trap One is going to be convened very soon. And, of course, Rebos Operation, which is just unfiltered Robert Holmes, is another one of the greatest of all time that people don't say enough good things about. And then Season 17 has just gotten its nice reevaluation on Blu-ray, and Season 17 really has some wonderful moments even though fandom memory of season 17 was at a very low ebb during the discontinuity guide era. So Graham Williams will later do some great stuff in his three years as producer. It's just that this story is not it. No, now, I think you wanted to talk about the book again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I think, I think you sort of mentioned that um, the start of the book is really good. And there were a couple of things that took me by surprise. And I really liked Terence Dick's explaining um, about Titan and its atmosphere and how the um, how the sort of hydrogen plants would work and how that would fuel the things. I've completely forgotten about that. And it's just that little bit of explanation, just one paragraph that sort of makes the reader sort of understand sort of what um, what and why they're there and what they're doing. And it's just that little bit of explanation. I really enjoyed that. It was just, um, it was just a very Terence Dix things to do. So I think you can see some enthusiasm at the start of the novel. It's just when you get halfway through, you think, mm. yeah, he's, bit, and it's just little things like he, he does work on the character of Leela. Cause Leela is not well served by this story where, Bob Baker and Dave David Martin come in and they've read the brief that says she's a savage and she's primitive. And so, so it's obviously stupid. And they don't give her the best material to work with. There's a lot about her instincts as a hunter and things like that. But she's not portrayed as very bright through this. And Terence works quite hard on the character through the book. I noticed to say that 
although she's uneducated, she wasn't stupid. She knew this. She understood the principle. Mm. She'd learnt how to fly the TARDIS, for goodness sake. Yeah, Terence doesn't really have a band-aid for how she's able to do that, but <laughs> no. it, it is there. Oh, Doctor Shona, just, just in case. <laughs> um, and there are things that Louise Jameson does on screen which are not reflected in the novelization. No. Since Terence is working from an earlier script draft, you have to assume that all of her input during rehearsal is the stuff that leads to her learning how to write her name on the chalkboard yes. in the TARDIS. That is not in the book. That's a great little nonverbal moment for the character. So the stuff that she adds was all done in rehearsal, so it was not reflected in the book. But I've said this before on this show. Louise Jameson put such blood, sweat, and tears into making Leela work as a character, where the character shouldn't work. No, no, no. At all. Um, but you, you're absolutely right. She never stops doing interesting things and she's paying attention to the character and even if she's not written brilliantly on the page she will be doing something that makes you watch her and know that she she understands this character inside out and will sort of lift what she what material she's got to a different plane again this is one of terence's four micro books the reason the doctor brings Leela into his brain as a miniaturized clone, a clone which has a maximum life expectancy of 10 minutes, 55 seconds, but which survives on camera for about 30 minutes in movie <laughs> format. That's another one Terrence doesn't quite manage to explain. Leela is brought into the doctor's brain to be a hunter to find the virus. And as the script is written, she has nothing to do to find the virus. She goes off on a side quest to fight miniaturized low while the doctor finds the virus all on his lonesome. Yeah, the the germ of the idea is there. It just <laughs> germ. Go. I see what you okay, did there. Sorry, I keep, keep doing that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but th again, the idea is there, but the writers don't follow it up. Imagine if Terence had just done a chapter from Leela's POV. And again, the books yeah. weren't really doing that, but a chapter from Leela's POV actually tracking the virus in the doctor's brain. Now, in the 1990s, I think it was Jim Mortimer's Eye of Heaven. That is a Leela book, and there are huge portions of the book narrated from Leela's point of view, and it's amazing. Terence Dix could have given us a Leela POV chapter here. Now, that wasn't what he usually did. He would have you know Sarah Jane narrate certain scenes. If he had just put a little more space to Leela narrating the search for the virus in the doctor's brain in part three, instead he rushes through that material. It's only 22 pages that he tells a 25-minute episode, part three. Missed opportunity. Missed opportunity. Definitely. Yeah, and then you could get more of the description of what she's seeing um, and how amazing and weird it is that just doesn't come over on the page at all. Yeah. Right, let's go back to 1978 and tell Terence, come on, up your game. <laughs> uh, ex ex exactly. Uh, yeah, this, this, this was, this was Terence's lean year for very, very short books, and he will, he will have a comeback. But this is the beginning of the period. Terence, I think, is most remembered for writing really short, cursory books, which is completely untrue. He adds tremendous value, and he did, very, he did several long books. This is the book that I think outlasted and people remember this book as a negative against him and it's unfortunate because he was doing so much other great work that is not this book yeah absolutely and 
mean, the, the last book we discussed was Planet of Evil, which again we both felt Terence Dix's heart wasn't in that story at all, um, and it it's the same thing here, sort of towards the end, where it's just uh, right. Well, okay, I've got this. I'm just going to get through it as quickly as possible, and that will do. Um, and it's it's a shame. I think there was a lot more he could have done with it. Yeah, and again, there's just especially in part part four on television. I'm going to talk about this a little more later on, so I don't want to spoil uh, my last half hour here. But part four on television establishes that viruses lay eggs, and that is how viruses reproduce. Yep. Part four establishes on TV that the doctor's solution to low is not because remember that low is an innocent victim of the virus mm-hmm. and he's played by michael sheard who was always heroic characters on doctor who in the past instead of just carrying an extra syringe to inject low with the antidote the doctor on tv murders low by shoving him into the reproduction tank for the virus to eat all those little viruses hatched from eggs as viruses do feast on low's rotting corpse so, on television, viruses hatch from eggs. The doctor murders Low. They must spawn. As we <laughs> yes. Time after time after time. Oh. <laughs> he, he, he murders Low, and then he literally dematerializes minus Leela and Kana. You could probably have a whole season of Big Finish Adventures, what the doctor is doing on his own after leaving mm-hmm. Leela and Kana into their fate on Titan, which is about to explode before going back and saving them. Part four on TV may be the worst individual story part in Doctor Who in quite, 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 quite some time. Maybe going back to the Space Pirates, uh, if not other portions of uh, seasons five or six. Hello, Fraser. This is your dominated reference for the week. <laughs> but you, you could, Terrence makes he makes one fix to one of those problems, and I won't say what it is. But otherwise, he looks at the script for part four and he goes, all right. I'm going to get through this as quickly as possible with as minimal effort as possible. And I have robots of death to do next month. And that's a much better story. So my brain is going to check out and I'm mentally plotting robots of death as I type up these chapters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It, it's just, yeah. unfortunate, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah, it just doesn't quite come together and it's even more obvious on the page. I mean, um, it took me 40 minutes to read the book end to end. And I mean, that says it all. I mean, I read fast anyway, but even so, I mean, that it's not a demanding read in any way. And there's so little extra stuff added sort of after the first couple of chapters that it's just not, you're just really just plowing through it. I mean, that maybe that was the, the thing that I liked as a child, that it wasn't a demanding read and it was, um, it was exciting all the way through, if nothing else. But as an adult, there's not much to grab onto in this one, I think. Yeah, I would I would tend to agree with your assessment. I loved Invisible Enemy when I was 11 years old mm-hmm. because you have that great musical sting as the virus comes to full size. You have lots of characters doing possessed acting, which is a lot yep. of fun when you're 11 years mm-hmm. old. And you have, you know, contact has been made you have get out of my brain you have a lot of repeated lines and then of course you have the little bit of time lord mythology with the doctor narrating the inside of his brain and talking about his super ganglia 
when I was an 11 year old fan, I loved this story on television. Mm-hmm. My father gave me one VHS tape to use to tape Doctor Who if we weren't going to be home. And in super long play mode, you would get you could use a VHS tape in two hour, four hour, or six hours. So if you taped it at the lowest possible speed, you would get low quality six hours fit onto a tape. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that. I was I had I think you could fit fourteen individual story parts onto a single VHS tape. So I would watch it, tape it. If I liked it, save it. If I didn't like it as much tape over it mm-hmm. i watched i think parts two and three of invisible enemy over and over and over and over and over again because i enjoyed them that much and i had that musical sting in my head for months if not years it's just the story does not age along with the viewer it is so poorly thought out and so juvenile that once i stopped being 11 years old my love for the story unfortunately stayed in the summer of 1985 and i will never mm-hmm. get it back no i and there were things from the book that that really stayed with me. I, I always remember Terence's um, description of the um, the the voice of the contact has been made being a dragging and slurred um, sort of voice, and I, that's one of his descriptions that he uses quite often for anyone who's slightly possessed or or not not quite with it. I've, I think the Robomen talked with dragging and slurred voices in the Dalek right. Invasion of Earth. But that's sort of one of his sort of descriptive phrases that I, that I always remember. And the gurgling voice of the swarm itself. And just those, those tiny little bits obviously were enough to stay with me and sort of implant a, a little bit of love for, for this book. Speaking of a little bit of love, let's give her, let's give over most of the rest of our time to talking about the new companion introduced in this story. Oh gosh, yes. On a scale of one to Joe Grant, how awesome is K9? Oh, Joe Grant. I um K9 was the first thing in Doctor Who that I loved. So I um as many people will know or or don't know, I, I, I <laughs> um I started Doctor Who with season 17 and um so my my TARDIS team is always the Doctor, the Second Romana, and K Nine. That's my my go to team. And K Nine, I just adored as a as a sort of four, five, six year old um, for the the time he was in the show. I loved him. I was exactly the right demographic for the character. I didn't get his peak years, unfortunately. Um, because I don't think he's written for as brilliantly ever again after the key to time as he is through that whole year. He is magnificent. Um, but K9, I loved him. Absolutely loved him. And my favorite toy as a child was my talking K9. He, yeah, that I used to pull around on a string and go on ah. adventures with as a very young child. Um, so yeah, I, and all the books with K9 in were ones that I would go back to a lot because I just loved I loved the character so much. I am unapologetic in my love for K9. My wife is always talking about buying a Roomba for the for the apartment. I'm like, I am only buying a Roomba if it has a K9 attachment. Absolutely. A K9 shaped Roomba. My 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 aim in life is to one day have enough money to own a full size K9 that ah. I can just trundle around the house. I, I just just think it's a tremendous design. It's a 
brilliant character. John Leeson's voice is is wonderful. And I did have to laugh in the book where he's described as having a gruff voice because the one thing Canine has <laughs> not got is a gruff voice. He's got a very fey and very tinny voice, oh. particularly at this at this this particular era. So um yes. You know, uh, I, that that did make me smile. I thought, well, no, Terence hasn't ha- actually heard what's going on on TV, and he will will adapt his his uh, description of the voice um, to a much more TV accurate one as the books go on. My favorite description of Canine actually comes via Peter Grimwade in the novelization of Planet of Fire, and we'll revisit that in the coming months or years. Mm-hmm. I forget how far away that is from this is book forty seven. Oh, quite a while. <laughs> Quite a while, but I have just—I have an irrational love for canine. To this day, canine is for me. I think it was—I think it was for the 2020 presidential election. I think it was 2020. The New York Times website used three animated canines. They did, didn't they? Yes. Mm-hmm. They introduced the election results, and more—more more than that, in the early days of smartphones. So we're talking about more than 10 years ago. Uh, we we are an Android household, so we use um, mm-hmm. and, Android software, phones, Google phones. Android in the beginning was not very good at handling email clients, so my wife was unable to get I think her Gmail to work on her original smartphone. So she called tech support, and it turns out the fix there is a third party program called Canine Mail. Ah, oh. import your email mm-hmm. client and display it on your on your phone. So for a good couple of years until the phones upgraded, my wife had Canine Mail, and the icon was Canine's head. Oh, and she great. she knew enough about Doctor Who to know who Canine was. She was very excited to always show me that she had Canine deliver the mail on her phone. <laughs> Fantastic! So so Canine continues to have a very positive influence on our society. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I I I know there was very much a craze in the late seventies and early eighties for cute robots. Um, sort of post star wars but we forget that canine actually just about predates star wars and is sort of on the crest of that wave sort of at just the right time and i know the ro- the the remote control prop wasn't the most reliable and it annoyed the actors and it bumped into the scenery and everything else but the fact that they actually went to the effort of making a remote control dog <laughs> Um, for a show that is stretched in its budget. And then they decide, well, actually, this has been quite a success and we're just going to keep it on. I think that that's that's a smart, one of the, perhaps the smartest thing that comes out of this story. Can I last from the middle of... Actually, he, he premieres in the first produced story of season 15 and he makes it all the way, almost, through the end of season 18. Yeah. And then, of mm-hmm. course, he comes back in The Five Doctors. He comes back several times in the new series. He was a semi-regular on the Sarah Jane Adventures whenever they got the rights away from Bob Baker and Dave Martin. Yes. And, of mm-hmm. course, he had his own one-season Australian series, which maybe I'll do a bonus episode on that. I'll come and do. I'll come and do that with you. I've been. I think I'm the only person who's actually watched it all. <laughs> so, I had to review the series for uh, Enlightenment, the fanzine of the Doctor Who Information uh-huh. Network out of Toronto. So 
the then editor Cameron of Enlightenment had me do a review of the series, and he also got John Blum, who at the time was in Australia and trying to pitch for that series. We wrote dueling reviews of Canine the series, and mine was sarcastic and negative, and John's was absolutely glowing and very, very, <laughs> very positive. So those two reviews were published back to back in the same fanzine issue. I like portions of Canine the series. And some of the actors in that have actually gone on to very good things. Mm-hmm. However, the dog has to fly. Now, this makes sense to have K-9 yep. fly because on television, you have these very lanky actors like Tom Baker and Mary Tam are always crouching down to yes. get the K-9 prop into shot. If K-9 flies, he's at shoulder level. He's much easier as a performer to communicate with. But dogs don't fly. So that whole thing no. doesn't really work. And- but I do love that they did an episode with an evil canine and they gave him a cape. That always <laughs> makes me laugh. I, right. I, I, wow. <laughs> but if, if the series gave us just one thing of genius, that will do me. That's fine. <laughs> and Bob Baker, who was the co-creator and co-producer of that series, after they had, there was like a, after the first half of the season, they had to change the writer's room and, change the producers bob baker comes out on the second half of the series and writes a couple of episodes there's an episode on that which is basically nightmare of eden the same plot yeah and then bob bob baker writes to himself one clip show and one proper story so if you dig deep enough in my doctor who pilgrimage hashtag on twitter i actually reviewed several of those stories <laughs> in sequence when i got to 2009 on television earlier this year not a great series it's no, but it's John Leeson's voice. He's having a lot of fun doing canine. They cast him against an actor who has Tom Baker hair, a young teen yeah. actor. So that was, that was a nice homage. It has bits of it to write. So yeah, if I ever do a special episode on canine, the series, I'll bring you back as my, uh, co-commentator. I will be there for that. So I had a lovely title sequence and music. I thought that was, was really, really nicely done and homaged, the start of Canine and Company brilliantly with the animation that filled oh, yes. in Canine as well. So it's these little nods all the way through. But but yeah, I I I anything that brings Canine back is is good for me. I'm always happy to hear John Leeson. Um, and I, I do remember um meeting John Leeson for the first time and him doing and me just sort of having a moment where he did the canine voice and it's just it's just magic and this was my my hero my my thing in doctor who that i loved so it's just something yeah something about that prop and that voice and everything that still retains that magic for me yes absolutely absolutely I'll just ask you, which one is better, the Ian Levine Canine Company theme song or the Australian 2009 Canine theme? Well, I mean, how can you judge between the <laughs> I, I, I will go through the Canine and Company theme because it's just so completely and utterly ridiculous <laughs> that uh, it makes me smile just thinking about it. So that's a good thing. <laughs> And of course, John Leeson sings backup vocals to his own theme song, whereas the yes. K-9 the series uh, theme song has no vocals. No, that's sad. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, last bit of business. This episode is going to be released one week to the day before the power of the Doctor. Mm-hmm. I did a trap one last week, breaking down the unrevealing power of the Doctor trailer. You can certainly catch that on Trap One. What are your predictions, Cy, for power of the Doctor? Wrong answers only. <laughs> well, I mean... W- as usual with a Chibnall story, we know so little, really, that it could be anything. So the theory that um, my my friend Dr. Simon Exton sent me last week that made me go, ooh, at, was that the strange twin planet that is drawing its energy from the Earth is going to be Mondas. And he said, because... Chibnall likes to remix old stories. He's mm. calling this the power of the Doctor, so why not have a homage to the story that comes before the first power story, Power of the Daleks, with the Tenth Planet? We know the Cybermen are in it. You know, that seems fairly likely. Interesting, because you had, in the Moffat era, you had a two-part Mondasian Cyberman story followed yes. by a story set within part four the of the 10th yeah, planet. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then you had, you had, you had a five season stretch where three of the two part season finales were doctor. were so sorry. were master Cyberman team ups. Exactly. And here we are again. Yeah. To have that again might be overkill, but we'll see. Also, I think there will be a reference to um, Tegan and the master and Auntie Vanessa. I'm sure that is going to happen. Um, she's going to reference and she's going to call the master a revolting man again. Oh, <laughs> I, would, I would love to hear Janet Fielding say that again. Yes, me too. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't believe the actor who played Auntie Vanessa is still alive, but it would have Sadly been nice not. to have her come back. Sadly yeah. not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think there'll be a Tegan master scene that will be charged with with lots of emotion, probably, um, that I'm looking forward to. But really, I'm, I'm, I've been broadly um, in favour of this era. I've enjoyed it a lot, possibly a lot more than than um, a lot of other people have. I'm not blind to its faults, but I've really loved Jodie, and I'm, I'm really sad she's going. I'm, I'm not. Uh, you always have this this moment when when doctors go where you feel you're not quite ready, but sometimes you are ready for a doctor. When David Tennant went, for some reason, I was absolutely ready for him to go and have a new era come and do something different. When Matt Smith went, I was really upset. I thought there was so much more potential in his doctor that we hadn't seen. Um, And when Capaldi went, I was just happy because that had not been my era and I was ready for a a new showrunner at that point. Although he was always brilliant, he wasn't my doctor and jody has been unexpectedly a doctor that i've liked so i'm yeah i'm just interested to see how they do it they've just got such a lot to wrap up that i don't think we're going to get all the answers to everything ever that have been posed over the last last three seasons will be be tied up neatly which is a shame jody has not been well served by the writing but if you look at her performances you look at the enthusiasm that she brings and the way that she chooses to deliver exposition she is the best asset to the series and nobody talks about well very few people talk about her as one of the best doctor performers ever but she does no, incredible she, work yeah 
Peter Capaldi was given increasingly long monologues direct to camera. There were entire episodes based upon what if we have Peter Capaldi act this way. They gave him more and more to do as an actor, and he crushes it, even when the stories aren't great. Peter Capaldi's last season, even though it has a high number of clunkers, he's doing such good work in it, including the episode where he plays guitar over the theme song. Mm -hmm. I think Peter Capaldi is one of my favorite doctors, but Jodie needs to get a lot more credit for the work she's done, and I hope that this final 90-minute script gives her a lot of good material to sink her teeth into as, as a performer. Yeah, I've been um, reading your reviews of the stories for your pilgrimage and seeing how you have said you've misjudged her sometimes and misjudged the era. And um, and again, there are faults. We know that his Chris Chibnall is not... He's very functional on the dialogue. Mm. He's very functional with his plotting a lot of the time. Um, things slipped through that maybe should have been corrected or... or um, been better but i don't think that none of that is jody's fault and none of that is mandip's fault they have always given their all to this show and to this era and um yeah it's it's going to be fascinating i think over the next five or six years to see how perceptions change because every doctor gets reevaluated as soon as there's a new doctor or an old new doctor, depending on where we get to by this time next week, because God knows where, where, we, who will be the doctor this time next week. Um, yes. So um, it's, yeah, it's, it, I'm interested to see where, where that goes. Yeah. I have been watching. I am up to right now. I finished war of the Sontarans last night. So tonight, time permitting i will be watching once upon time which mm -hmm. i loved i think you and i i think you and i did the trap one for that last year we, we, I, we? I, yes mm -hmm. yes so once upon time i loved and then the last three episodes after that i did not appreciate and then we have of course legend of the sea devils is coming back up which just aired earlier this year and that was a huge set of missed opportunities Chibnall's trademark the missed opportunity mm -hmm. But I will have finished the pilgrimage a week from tomorrow, October 23rd. And considering that I started the pilgrimage October 26th, 2020, it will have taken me almost two years to get through the entirety of the show. And at times it feels like I am crawling across to the finish line and I'm looking forward <laughs> to starting a different non-Doctor Who series. But that being said, the work that Jody has done just, blows me away because i am paying a lot more attention to her now that i am to the plots and the concepts and i love the work she's doing and hopefully she gets a memorable all-time great finale i hope so Sai, thanks very much we're going to get you back on here real soon now your next appearance is already booked hope you finish recovering from covid and you Thank get to you. watch some better stories than the time monster <laughs> oh fingers crossed there's still time <laughs> talk soon mm -hmm. okay thanks jason Doctor Who and the Invisible Enemy, written by Terence Dix, televised as the Invisible Enemy, teleplay by Bob Baker and Dave Martin, televised in October 1977, published in March 1979. A mysterious cloud drifts menacingly through space. A sudden energy flash and the Doctor is infected with the nucleus.
of a malignant virus that threatens to destroy his mind. Meanwhile, on Titan, human slaves prepare the hive from which the virus will swarm out and infect the universe. In search of a cure, Leela takes the Doctor to the Foundation, where they make an incredible journey into the Doctor's brain in an attempt to destroy the Nucleus. But can the Doctor free himself from the Nucleus in time to reach Titan and destroy the Hive? Luckily, he has help in the strangely dog-like shape of a mobile computer called Canine. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I'm Jason. Where are you this week? Where are you listening to me? Are you out running? Driving? Sitting back in your overstuffed leather armchair in a John Pertwee-style smoking jacket, smoking a pipe, sampling some red wine and gorgonzola cheese? Or perhaps you are Mark Gatiss, in which case you are literally wearing John Pertwee's purple jacket from Planet of the Daleks. And Mark... If you're listening, call me, buddy. Consider this an open invite. Or perhaps you are fondly thinking back to last week's episode, episode 46, Doctor Who and the Hand of Fear. Perhaps you recall me saying that I didn't really appreciate that story at age 12, but then went off to college, minored in film, and by age 20 really appreciated, for the first time, what Laney Main had done directing that story. Perhaps you remember all that. Perhaps as you sit there pertweeing, or driving, or running, or if you're like me and you have two months worth of other podcasts backlogged in your queue, you're standing at the sink washing dishes or bagging up the week's recycling, you'll remember my having said that, and you sat there, or drove there, or ran there and nodded to yourself, I too share that feeling. Well, this week is going to be quite the opposite. Insert record scratch sound here. I loved, loved The Invisible Enemy as a kid. It's the perfect story for not-yet-teenagers. An endlessly quotable refrain, as you get in most Bristol Boy stories, contact has been made. A really goofy-looking monster, and the whole fantastic voyage thing going on. R.I.P. Coolio, by the way. Dudley Simpson's musical sting at the Part 3 cliffhanger as the virus comes to full-size life played in my head endlessly in the summer of 1985. But, boy, oh boy, is this story tough to watch as a grown-up. As a novelization, this is also less than Terrence's best effort. Coming into this read-through project, I had two basic memories of Terrence's target output. One, every book was 12 chapters long with cliffhangers neatly demarcated at the end of every three chapters for a four-part story, or at the end of every two for a six-part story. Second, in the late 70s, all of Terence's books were barely 100 pages long. Those two memories are pretty wildly inaccurate. This book, it's true, is just 104 pages of text, and only 12 chapters, The next three Terrence books after this, all from 1979, will be similarly short, but that's where it ends. Terrence was writing plenty of 140-page and or 14-chapter books throughout the rest of the late 70s. Invisible Enemy and the three books following are the aberration on his part, not the norm. So I went into this not lamenting the fact that some other author could have done a better, longer job, but rather, I went in hoping to find Terence's typical trademarked gold 
witty observations, sarcastic lacerations of the TV author's plotting, continuity fixes, or other plot-saving measures. Chapter 1 and the first two paragraphs in particular are pretty excellent. Terence's usual economic scene setting, desperate to be read aloud. Page 7, which is the first page. Something was waiting out in space. It drifted between the stars, formless, shapeless, a hazy drifting cloud, waiting patiently as it had waited for millennia. It was helpless, since it lacked physical form, yet potentially it was all-powerful. Apparently inert, it was filled with a life and a fierce driving purpose. It was waiting for a host. Further down the same page, Terence adds a wicked aside about future Earth history. Technically, Meeker was on duty, though in reality he had nothing to do. A steady, self-satisfied instrument beep announced that the ship's computer was really in charge. It had brought the ship from Earth. Soon it would land it safely on Titan, one of the ten moons that circled the giant planet Saturn, 1.430 million kilometers from Earth's sun. This was the paradox of space travel. You selected the brightest, the most determined from thousands of candidates, and trained them to a peak of physical and mental skill. Then you surrounded them with computer technology so that only in some million-to-one emergency would their skills ever be needed. Invisible Enemy was famously a story made under rushed and inexperienced circumstances. It was Graham Williams' first time out as producer, and he would later oversee some phenomenal stories in seasons 16 and 17. But this one proved to be a deadly maiden voyage. So there's scripted dialogue that never got delivered on TV, and you can find some of the cut material on page 9, more of Meeker lamenting his coming six-month stint on Titan. One good thing about Baker and Martin's scripts, not counting their sometimes cruel treatment of Leela, was their interest in using real science concepts as a springboard for their stories. Terence, who, as we learned in Horror of Fang Rock, liked to use children's books to educate himself on real-life topics that worked their way into Doctor Who episodes, here gives a fascinating lecture, albeit somewhat dated now, as we've learned a lot more since 1979, about the planet Saturn and its satellite, Titan, page 13. Saturn is a giant of a planet, an immense globe of gas 750 times the volume of Earth. Besides its famous rings formed by countless icy particles reflecting the dim sunlight, Saturn is celebrated for the number of its moons. There are ten in all, and the largest Titan is the biggest satellite in the solar system. Larger than the planet Mercury. It has its own cloudy atmosphere of hydrogen and methane. It was on Titan that the Earthmen had built their refueling base. Giant fans sucked the hydrogen-methane atmosphere through enormous intake shafts into the station's storage tanks, where it was processed and converted into chemical booster fuel. The station itself was bleakly functional, its machinery and living quarters embedded deep in solid rock. It was a place of winding tunnels and metal corridors festooned with miles of sprawling gas pipes. Here, the crew of the shuttlecraft were to live, or at least exist, for the next six months, relieving the three-man crew already there. Michael Sheard's character is introduced on page 17. 
As with last week's Bristol Boys story, The Invisible Enemy is oddly structured, with few characters appearing in all four episodes. Saffron, Sylvie, and Meeker, who featured heavily in Chapter 1, but little thereafter, were barely introduced. Terence can do a little more with Michael Sheard, describing him as a, quote, fussy, methodical man with injured pride. This is Sheard's fourth Doctor Who role, chronologically speaking, but his first time as a villain. And Terence doesn't really sell him up very well. Something not featured in the book is Baker and Martin playing around with the evolution of language. Set in the year 5000 CE or so, the Bristol boys figured that English would have evolved over the next 3,000 odd years. So the emergency exit hatch in Sheard's character's office is spelled almost phonetically, emergency exit. You can see that on TV, and more on the hospital asteroid in parts 2 and 3, but that spelling is not mentioned in the book at all. But I can tell you that Saffron's Mayday cancellation message on page 19 is worded differently by the time the TARDIS picks it up on page 20. So far to this point, I've been very complimentary of the Chapter 1 material, but you'll note that I've been more critical of Chapter 2. This is where you can really feel Terence's absence from the book, or disengagement from the TV scripts, or both. Chapter 2 flies by with hardly any trademark Terence wit, or subtle fixes, or any sort of writer's commentary. It's for the purpose of this read-through of the TARDIS novelizations and publication order, much more dull and ordinary than any other book Terence has written to date. Part 1 contains a lot of material where the Doctor is downright verbally abusive to Leela. And as I recall, we'll see more of that when we come to the Bristol Boys' Underworld in a couple more months. Terence puts the faintest of patches on this, top of page 28, quote, Although he often teased her about it, he had a great respect for Leela's instinct. But there's a lot fewer of these comments than Terence puts in his books of 120 pages or more. This flies by in a way that's great for kids, but is much lighter on literary merit than we're used to seeing on this podcast. Even gods are entitled to go on vacation once in a while. In Chapter 4, as on TV... Leela successfully pilots the TARDIS from the moons of Saturn to a specific asteroid in orbit between Mars and Jupiter. How do you say can Leela do this? Terence just about manages an explanation at the bottom of page 36, probably rolling his eyes and gritting his teeth at the same time, in a way that I imagine would have made typing difficult. Quote, Her knowledge of technical matters was almost nil, but she had seen the Doctor take off on the TARDIS often enough. Moreover, the doctor had instructed her in basic takeoff and landing procedures, saying she might need the information in some emergency. Now that emergency had arrived. End quote. I do like Terence's description of the Bial Foundation, the hospital that provides the bulk of the story's setting in Chapter 4. Although she didn't know it, he writes of Leela, this was a basic hospital scene that hadn't changed for thousands of years. The reception nurse is, quote, icily efficient. My kid sister used to do that kind of work, in the same way that my babysitting her paid for my copy of this book. Terence's description is spot on. I also love the description of Professor Marius on page 39, one that was surely later included verbatim in the pilot script for House M.D. Quote, His comfortable, informal clothes indicated that he was too senior to be bothered with looking respectable. 
Marius is, quote, explosively cheerful, as with the icily efficient reception nurse two pages earlier, Terence's best descriptions are made up of a single adverb followed by a single adjective. He also adds the detail that Professor Marius is from New Heidelberg University, which may have been a script note but is not stated aloud on TV. Bottom of page 39 is the greatest moment in Doctor Who history and the introduction of my favorite companion of all time. Quote, page 39. Also included in the little group was the squat, metallic creature that stood near the bottom of the bed. It looked curiously like a kind of squared-off metal dog with a computer display screen for eyes and antennae for ears and tail. At the moment, it was studying the doctor's motionless form with a very sophisticated battery of scanning devices. A strip of computer printout papers began sprouting from its mouth, rather like a very long tongue. When the printout strip stopped protruding itself, Marius leaned down, patted the metal creature on the head, and tore off the strip. Although the description of canine having a, quote, gruff, metallic voice doesn't sound much like John Leeson, but Terence's other descriptions of canine's attributes are spot on and are still with us up through canine's most recent TV appearances about a decade ago now, unless he turns back up in the power of the doctor next week. As always, when his answers were questioned, there was a slightly huffy note in Canine's voice. Now on page 40, Terrence, who on the DVD audio commentaries always did a good job of pretending to be the 1970s production office's in-house Tory, goes off on an epic comedic rant to define the term Spacenik, another Baker and Martinism, an extrapolation of future slang. Terrence is right there with a textbook definition for this made-up word descendants of the hippies and beatniks of the late 20th century, spaceniks were penniless wanderers who somehow managed to smuggle themselves on board various kinds of spacecraft in their desire to commune with the mysteries of the universe. Since they were without either financial resources or technical skills, they usually landed in trouble and had to be ferried home by the terrestrial government at enormous expense. Blithering idiots, the pair of you. This man is in a self-induced coma. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the fellow. Now, look at him. He's probably one of those good-for-nothing space nicks. Now, why have I been sent for? Tell me that, hmm? Why? <laughs> Complete and utter waste of time. Excuse me, sir. Right, 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 right. Well, K-9 indicates that the, that the patient is not a member of the human race. Nonsense. Well, see for yourself. Look, two hearts. Symbiotic self-renewing cell structure. Is this right, canine? Affirmative, master. Is he now? Point of origin? Beyond the solar system. Thank you, canine. Master. Yes? Let's get an encephalograph out on him. Hmm? Well, what is it? Unidentified viral type infection with noetic characteristics at present seated in the mind-brain interface and therefore having no ascertainable mass or structure. Master. 
Interesting, most interesting. It isn't every night that we come up with a brand new infection, is it, Parsons? No, sir. Hello. Good evening. Find anything? Not yet, my boy, but we will. We will. <sighs> ah, doctor, I see. Yes. Mm. What have you found? Cataleptic trance? Yes. Self-induced? Yes. <laughs> Why? Self-preservation. Whatever it is I'm suffering from seems to thrive on intellectual activity. Oh, I see. You mean that the harder you think, the more of a grip it seems to take. Yeah. Non-thinking is the only way to shake it off. I can't stay mindless for eternity, can I? Oh, no, I take a point. I take a point. Now, my computer here... No. He's... Hello? Hello. How... On page 47, Marius ignores a, quote, bit of robotic conceit from K9. On page 54, quote, K9 liked nothing better than to be asked for some of his ample store of scientific information. I don't know how much this book played into my long-standing love of K9, who sits atop my computer docking station at work and, at the touch of a button, tells me in John Leeson's pre-recorded voice, Affirmative, Master! Whenever I feel the need for validation, the book probably has very little to do with it. K9 on TV speaks for himself, but reading the book now is making me love K9 more than ever. Well, reading this small, isolated part of the book, anyway. Chapter 5 adds a brief scene showing the crew of the supply shuttle, the one that crashes into the asteroid in an effort to prevent Professor Marius from performing brain surgery on the doctor, being taken over by the virus. Terence also specifies, grimly, but I'm sure with a hint of enjoyment, that people from the asteroid are sucked out into space as the shuttle collides and as damaged sections of the asteroid depressurize. On page 59, again probably rolling his eyes at some of the improbabilities of the production, Terence helpfully notes that the Kilbracken cloning technique also duplicates the subject's clothes. But what Terence doesn't fix is the improbably long lifespans of the clones. We're told that the record length of survival of a Kilbracken clone is 10 minutes 55 seconds, and yet the Doctor and Leela are only cloned once, and remain in that state for, oh, about 30 minutes of story time in PBS movie format. Terence might not have noticed this discrepancy, typing up the script in record time, but it remains one of the more irksome TV production decisions. As I may have mentioned earlier, there are very few proper characters in The Invisible Enemy. The middle episode and credits are full of parts for Nurse, Medic, Ophthalmologist. Marius's medical student is named Parsons, but it doesn't matter. Parsons gets basically no characterization, either on TV or in the book. However, beginning on page 67, and otherwise, Too Busy Terence does spare Parsons half a paragraph of POV. He was beginning to feel that their success depended on increasingly strange allies. First two cloned miniatures, now a savage and a robot dog. The word savage might have been acceptable to Terence and his editor in 1979. Check that, it probably wasn't even acceptable then. Later down the page, Terence observes that inside of the doctor's brain through which the cloned and miniaturized Doctor and Leela are walking, is lit in a murky gloom, which is the closest Terence comes to solving the plot problem of how there's any light inside the Doctor's enclosed brain for them to see by. 
On page 70, Leela finally gets, through Terence's typewriter, a measure of revenge against the verbal abuse the doctor had subjected her to all story long. It was a pity, she thinks, it was a pity the doctor's bad temper had been cloned along with the rest of him. On the next page, quote, she was beginning to get tired of being lectured. On page 73, an interesting factoid about Time Lord biology, the doctor's liver is located in the small of his back. Huh. So far, chapters 1 and 4 have had the largest amounts of Terence's authorial voice. Chapters 8 and 9, on the other hand, are a mere 7 pages apiece. The part 3 material runs just 22 pages. Terence kills off Hedges in the part 2 material, though it's hard to tell who's who. Terence has K-9 kill Crookshank in chapter 7, that's part 3, but the online episode transcript doesn't even know which one is which, describing the victim as, quote, Crookshank or Hedges in the latter passage. Terence doesn't spend much time describing the majesty of the inside of the doctor's mind, which is said to be distinct from his brain, quote, the land of dreams and fantasy. You're trespassing, you know. Treading on my unconscious, affecting my metabolic Nucleus of what? The nucleus of the swarm. Oh. Oh, I see. Why did you choose my brain? Because of your intelligence. Oh, well, I can understand that, but you realize you have no right? I have every right. It is the right of every creature across the universe to survive, multiply, and perpetuate its species. How else does the predator exist? We are all predators, Doctor. We kill, we devour to live. Survival is all, you agree? Oh, yes, I do, I do. And on your argument, I have a perfect right to dispose of you. Of course. The law is survival of the fittest. Touche. Your time is running short. How do you intend to dispose of me? You have no weapons, and in minutes, you will cease to exist. I am the virus and the nucleus of the swarm. For millennia we have hung dormant in space, waiting for the right carriers to come along. Carriers? What do you mean, carriers? I'm not a porter. Consider the human species. They send hordes of settlers across space to breed, multiply, conquer, and dominate. We have as much right to conquer you as you have to strike out across the stars. But you intend to dominate both worlds, the micro and the macrocosm. We have waited, waited in the cold wastes of space, waited for mankind to come. And now we have not only space, but time itself within our grasp. Through you, Time Lord. I do like how Terence narrates the death of the clone doctor on page 85 with pleasingly graphic detail not realized on TV. The doctor touched a hand to his face. It felt insubstantial, paper thin. He could feel cracks appearing. Too late, the doctor remembered that he was only a carbon copy with a strictly limited life. A life that looked like ending before its work was done. The arrival of the nucleus, restored to full size at the Part 3 cliffhanger, two pages before the end of Chapter 9, is also gross and better realized either on TV 
or in Roy Knipe's somewhat disappointing depiction of the full-size virus on the otherwise excellent cover. Page 86. A horrible, incredible shape was filling the booth. It was blood-red in color, and was as big as a man with a bony glistening body and lashing tentacles. The huge black bulbous eyes swiveled malevolently around the ward. The doctor's RDS had magnified the nucleus to full human size. Terence gets a little sarcastic on page 89, referring to the TV spectacle of the life-sized virus. That's John Scott Martin crouching down inside an enormous shrimp costume, or prawn for most of you, being wheeled along on a dolly. Terence describes this as, quote, an extraordinary procession. On the next page, the nucleus is described, alliteratively, as cumbersome and constantly complaining. Terence, in fact, likes the word cumbersome with regard to the nucleus, so he uses it again on the same page a few paragraphs further down. More mocking of the plot, also in chapter 10, Marius, possessed by the virus, quote, could no longer understand the streak of sentiment that had caused him to want a computer in the shape of a dog. And Leela, after hearing the doctor rattle off a lightning-quick solution to mass-producing immunity to the virus, quote, couldn't believe things were quite that simple. Man, it's a good thing Terence never had to write the novelization of Praxius. Then when Terence on page 94 describes the nucleus now sitting on an acceleration couch in a shuttlecraft, as viruses do, as being in a, quote, slavering frenzy of impatience, I get the distinct sense that Terence had an even dimmer impression of this story than he would famously later have of the 1996 TV movie. At the top of chapter 11, Terence adds an expository paragraph or two that matches the glorious shade-throwing paragraphs that end the android invasion novelization. As Ross and I discussed back in episode 44, Terence puts his finger on everything the TV serial didn't acknowledge. The isolation ward was a scene of bustling activity again. Leela the doctor and canine had been scouring the foundation for infected medics, knocking them out, and dragging them back to the isolation ward, where they were forcibly injected with the antidote. When a sufficient number of medics had been cured, they were set to work manufacturing supplies of the antidote and sent out in teams to cure their fellow workers. It would be a long time before everything was back to normal, but slowly, the foundation was coming back to life. The only thing missing is the summation line, the invisible enemy, was over. Then Terence on page 100 never remarks upon the incongruity of a virus laying eggs to reproduce. Never remarks on page 102 why canine is able to glide after the doctor just eight lines after he runs out of battery. But Terence does remark upon the TARDIS's pinpoint perfect landings in this one story only as a, quote, rather nifty feat of navigation, page 100. There's a very significant change on page 104, and I don't know if that's Terence relying on the original script and avoiding a change made for TV, or rightfully changing an awful TV moment. On TV Low, who, remember, is an utterly innocent victim of the virus's mind control, is killed. When the doctor shoves him into the breeding tank to be consumed by the baby viruses hatched from their little eggs. You know, like viruses do, hatch from eggs. That's one of the most heinous things the Doctor has ever done. In the book, it doesn't happen that way. Well, all right, the, the virus is still hatched from eggs, but uh, Lowe instead is killed by Canine, who, having run out of battery two pages earlier, blasts Lowe to death in defense of the Doctor. That's still simple murder, but at least it's Canine doing it, and not Tom Baker. There's an infamous 
TV flub late in part four where Leela asks the doctor, what are we going to do? And the doctor responds, that's a good idea. This is a production glitch and not a Tom Baker unusual ad lib. Either nobody in the gallery caught that on sequitur, or they caught it but ran out of time to fix it. This was a fraught production with a week's filming at Ealing cancelled. But in the book, the doctor instead says, I think I've got an idea, which makes a lot more sense, and is either the line Tom Baker was supposed to have said, or a Terrence repair to a fundamentally broken script that nobody caught at table read, or in rehearsals, or on set that day. Chapter 12 is named for what I imagine is one of Terrence's favorite stories, Inferno, although that book is at least five years into the future. The chapter Inferno is not as good as the future book Inferno. On page 106, Terrence has the doctor babble, quote, nonsensically. Page 107, the doctor tries to dematerialize from an about-to-blow-up Titan base by leaving Leela and K-9 behind. It's even worse on TV when he actually does dematerialize, but then comes back. Make that another slight Terrence band-aid over the festering wound of a production. Then on page 110, by preserving Marius' truly dreadful parting line about hoping that K-9 is toilet-trained, <sighs> the invisible enemy is over. Let's say that again. The invisible enemy is over. Please get out of my brain. 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 The tear duct. The tear duct. The tear duct. Doctor Who literature. We jump forward two more months. It's May 1979, and young Jason learns that he's about to be an only child no longer. In the target line, we get another in a row of five straight Terrence novelizations, but for the first time in seven months, we are getting a book that is not based on a Bob Baker and Dave Martin episode, and it seems not a moment too soon. We get the final novelization of a Philip Hinchcliffe story, but not the final Philip Hinchcliffe novelization, thankfully. And it's a much better story than the one we discussed today. Join me and a returning guest as we welcome Doctor Who and the Robots of Death. And thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I'm Jason, your host and editor and producer. Special thanks to my special guest, Cy Hart. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at anchor.fm slash doctorwholit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels. And under the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage. 
and on email at drwholiterature, that's drwholiterature, at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.